Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, would you put out before us a banquet feast of your word? Let us feast on your word today. Would you reveal truth? Would you open up our eyes to see things that maybe we haven't seen before? May we understand truth in a new way so that we can become more like Jesus, so that we have your perspective. Revelation, revelation in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is very easy for us as human beings to become very comfortable with, familiar with certain things and we never question them. And I'm going to give you an example and, and it, it affects our view of scripture. When I was a, a little kid, went to kindergarten and I met a fellow that was a friend of mine throughout school. And I found out when I went to kindergarten that he only lived about a quarter of a mile away from us, up the hill just at the two, two different communities, and when you're five or six years old, you don't go too far from home. Later on, you do those kinds of things, unless you happen to escape and your parents don't realize it, but normally that doesn't happen. But anyway, this fellow's name was Wedge. His name was Wedge Lutz. Now, that is kind of strange, but his brother's name was Chip, and his other brother's name was Putter. They're and I'm not kidding you. Um, their dad was an avid golfer, and Bud Lutz was a well-known golfer down in the Reading area, and he would go to the driving range, and it was not uncommon for him to commonly, regularly drive balls 300 yards. Now, this is back in the day before high-tech drivers and special golf balls with their dimples just the right way and all that. Everybody knew that Bud Lutz was uh, quite a golfer and could, had the longest drive in the area, but he named his kids... Wedge, Chip, and Putter. And to this day, they're known by those names. I am not kidding you. They were all John Elmer Lutz Jr., but they had nicknames. Anyway, it's not the point. Um, I was introduced as a kindergarten kid to Wedge Lutz. And guess what? That was as normal a name to me as Frank, George, or whatever. You know, I was just a normal name to me, and I never thought, wow, that's a weird name. We just knew Wedgelutz, Wedgelutz, Wedgelutz. He was a good athlete. He was, an, he was a neat guy. He was a president of the class in high school as a senior, and uh, that was his name. Well, I, it never occurred to me, but one day I'm talking to people that might have even been here at church telling a story about those brothers and I said, Wedge, listen, they go, what kind of a name is Wedge? Like a bunk of cheese or what kind of a, what, what is that about? And so I thought about it. I thought, Wedge, 
boy, would I want to go around introducing myself as, what's your name, Wedge? Like, Blockhead? What's your name, Blockhead? <laughs> and you know what I mean? Just kind of... It, Anyway, there are things that we can accept, things that we've been taught that have become so familiar to us that we never really look at them very critically. And I don't mean critical in the sense that you're picking it apart, but really trying to understand it. And I know that it's really important when we come to Scripture that we don't have that kind of familiarity that doesn't allow it to speak to us. And that's why we ask for revelation from the Holy Spirit so that so that God can speak to us in ways that maybe we haven't quite heard before, understood before, or to see Scripture from a different light. And so, uh, anyway, the point that I want to make today is that Jesus calls Matthew. I think that's interesting that Jesus calls Matthew. He says, come follow me. And so Matthew starts following. Where does Jesus go? To Matthew's house. <laughs> follow me to your house. <laughs> Because it says, he told them, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner, so come on, you're going to make dinner for me and let's go. (laughs) That's not the point either. The point is that the Pharisees had a problem with the fact that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Now, I was wondering about that, that issue to begin with. Tax collectors were looked down upon, but who were the sinners? I mean, you have farmers and you had fishermen and you had merchants and you had all kinds of other occupations. Was there another whole group of people called sinners? <laughs> what do you do for a job? I'm a sinner. <laughs> <laughs> so that's strange, isn't it? I'm sorry. Uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit will do something with this. Um, the, word, the word used in, in the Greek there is, is hamartolos, which means someone who misses the mark. It comes from the Greek word hamartano, which is to miss the mark. That's the, the Greek word for sin. But it has a component to it that means that it's a moral kind of a failure. And so if we look at this from that perspective, that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and those who were failing morally. Well, what does that mean? Well, that could take you a lot of places, couldn't it? But it was obvious that the Pharisees didn't say, well, it's like these, all these Israelites who are our disciples, they're all sinners. They must have been known to be involved in some kind of moral sin on a regular basis, okay? I, is that fair to say that? I think it's fair to say that because they're tax collectors and sinners, like unusual, unusual. And so Jesus goes and he spends time with them, and he's accused of hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. And what I find that's unusual about all of this is the fact that more people came to Matthew's house when they knew Jesus was there, and they were comfortable with him, and he was comfortable with them. And I think that's unusual at least for church people to consider, isn't it? Um, I think it's rather powerful that Jesus went there. Why wasn't he, you know, why didn't he get some leather straps and make a whip and start overturning tables and saying, you vile sinners, you know, Matthew's house shall be called the house of prayer. Uh, It's not what he said. He sat there and he spent time with them. 
he was in a tax collector's house, and he was with sinners. So you just think about that for a while. I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to um, put any thoughts or ideas in your eye and, and even speculate about what kind of things the people, or even what was going on there. But obviously, the Pharisees had a real issue with what Jesus was doing. What was it about Jesus that allowed him to go to a place like that and be comfortable and have other people comfortable around him? I want you to think about it. Is there any place where you could go uh, that would make you uncomfortable being around certain kinds of people? Probably. Probably. I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to do that unless the Lord directs you, unless you're prepared to go there. But there was something about Jesus' attitude toward people who were trapped in sin that I think in some ways compelled him to go there. And I think that we need to take a look at this, and we need to examine this, and we need to come to some kind of understanding uh, about Jesus and his ministry and, and the kind of impact that it should possibly have on us. Um, only because I, I know the way that I was raised. I know the way I was trained, and I, and I have changed my thinking a lot. Um, Jesus, when he came to the world to save sinners, he came into the world to seek and to save the lost. He tells the parable of the lost sheep. There's a shepherd that has 100 sheep, and he loses one, and he leaves the 99. He goes to find the one. He goes to find the one that is lost. And so Jesus is saying his purpose, his whole purpose was to find the lost, to reach out to the lost, to go to those that were most needy. He didn't come to have a a wonderful little religious social club so we could all gather together and have a good time. There was was a real intentionality in what Jesus did in going out and finding those who were lost. So there must have been... I I, I think about that, and um, you know, he went because he was the Savior. He went because he knew they needed help. They They needed him. They needed what he had to offer. They needed what he carried. They needed the resource that he had and he had all of heaven's resources available to him to reach out to them and to touch them and to bring them out of the bondage that they were in to bring them into freedom he knew that he stood in that reality it was it was a reality that he grasped with his mind so powerfully that it didn't matter where he went he knew that wherever he went he would change the atmosphere the atmosphere wouldn't change him and so he had that kind of confidence so he could go there without worry without fear but he knew that they needed help, and so he was willing to go. And so I, 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 there's something I think that we need to grasp. I need to grasp. How did he do that? How did he, how, what perspective did he have that allowed him to so freely do that? Well, I, I, just, I, mean, I was just thinking off the top of my head, and how did, he, how did Jesus view those who were lost? First of all, he had compassion for them. I mean, he saw them in their need, and he knew that he could help them, and so he was willing to embrace where they were. And he didn't think that their dirt would pull him down. I was raised in a church situation where you had to watch out for the world because it would contaminate you. 
and it would pull you down, and it would pull you into sin. And so I was taught to think that if I got too close to sin, I would become more of a sinner. And so I lived my life most of the time, or at least my early childhood, my teenage years, and into young adulthood, and even into my married life, thinking I need to be careful of that and those people so because it's going to pull me down. <laughs> Praise the Lord, he's changed that. Uh, and he, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, he was confident that what he had was more powerful than what was out there. He knew that the God that was in him was mightier than the little gods that were out there. And so he wasn't concerned about that. He also didn't display that he was offended by their actions. He didn't, he didn't make them feel uncomfortable like there was something radically wrong with them. He just loved them. He expressed love to them. He also wasn't concerned that others would think that friendship with him meant that he approved of their behavior. There was something about Jesus where he didn't care what people thought about what he did and what he, how he acted. Um, obviously, the religious leaders didn't like that he hung out with sinners, but he didn't really care what they thought. And he wasn't afraid of being misinterpreted for what he was doing. He just did what he believed was right. And we know that he only did what he thought what he saw the father doing and only spoke what he heard the father saying. (laughs) He also somehow had the capacity to express that love that never came out as condemnation because more more people came to him. More people came to him. They gathered at, at Matthew's house. More tax collectors and sinners came to Matthew's house. They must have felt safe. He demonstrated love and didn't worry about being liked. He never tried to be broadly popular. We know that he wasn't out trying to just accumulate a crowd. He was out trying to just, he was trying to teach the truth. Because he knows that truth brings freedom. Came for the purpose of helping sinners, the lost. How do you do that if you're never really around them? Now, truth of the matter is that anyone who doesn't know Jesus is a sinner and they're lost. It's not a particular category or behavior or anything like that. It's everybody, which means that there's only two kinds of people in the world, those that know Jesus and those that don't. And we were sinners, but we've been redeemed. We've been made whole. We are clothed with Christ's righteousness because of faith in, in Jesus, and so... There's that difference. But Jesus came. He, his whole purpose. See, his whole purpose was to come to redeem sinners. He came for the purpose of reaching out to sinners. That was his whole mission. Isaiah 53, 12 says this, Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So his whole purpose was to minister to them. Now, here's one other aspect that I've thought about when it comes to Jesus and and being around um, those that were called sinners. How did he overcome social pressure? How did he overcome... uh, Well, he never did give in to fear of man, but how did he overcome fear? There must at times temptation come to think, well, if I do this 
then this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And I, how, did he, how was he able to demonstrate his love, compassion for these folks in the midst of all that turmoil? How did he get to the place? And see, the reason that I'm asking that is how do I get there? Okay, If he found a way, then how do I find a way to demonstrate the same kind of attitudes and the same kind of compassion? And, um, you know, if we, if we decided to... Uh, The church is not looked on with favor in the world. The church doesn't have the same kind of reputation that Jesus had. Let's just put it that way. And so if we announced we're going to go to some place where there were sinners, would they welcome us with open arms? Would they give us a meal? Or would they put up barriers and say, please let us alone? Um, just, that just makes me think. But here's one thing about Jesus. He went into the midst. He went to Matthew's house And all these people came, and we know that on other occasions he was compassionate to those that were trapped in sin. Jesus knew when he was face-to-face with those people that these were the very people he was about to die for. He was about to give his life and pour out his blood for those people. So maybe there's a key for us. <laughs> Am I willing to give up my life for the sake of other people to, to know Jesus? Am I willing to sacrifice myself? Am I willing to give up my life? Because there's a reality there that there's certain things that I want to maintain as far as my own integrity, Right? I need to worry about what people think. No, I don't need to worry about what people think. Does that mean I'm just, I want to take all barriers and restraints off and just act crazy? No, that's not what Jesus did. He just went to demonstrate God's love. I, I found this, this is an interesting story. Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody was a preacher um, from uh, a while back. And I I found this story. I thought this was interesting. Dwight Moody went to Chicago and started a Sunday school class for poor kids. One day he was walking down the street and saw a kid that had been absent for a few weeks. And Mr. Moody said, hey, kid, you weren't there last Sunday. And the boy ran down the street and Mr. Moody Moody ran after him. The fellow ran down the street and opened a door of an apartment house and ran upstairs. And Mr. Moody got there just before the door went shut. He ran in the door and ran upstairs, and the little kid opened the door of his apartment and ran inside, and Mr. Moody went into the apartment before the door shut, but the young fellow crawled under the bed. Mr. Moody got him by the foot and pulled him out from under there and said, you didn't come to Sunday school last Sunday. I want to see you. About that time, the father came in. He said, what's going on here? (laughs) Mr. Moody said, my name is Dwight Moody. Oh, he said, you must be crazy, Moody. Why was he crazy? He ran after sinners. Other churches didn't want their carpet dirty. Other churches did not want their walls soiled. I know of churches who never have a sinner kneel at the altar. Drunkards never made sober and harlots made pure. Bus kids made right. Mr. Moody went after sinners. And so that becomes an, 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 an issue for us. Uh, 
there was a compassion that moved Jesus. There's a, one of the most difficult spirits that we have to deal with, and I believe that demonic spirits um, carry the name of their character. So a spirit of fear is, a, a, is actually a demon of fear that if we give in to fear, that spirit just likes to tag around with us and just keep yanking on us and push us into that mode of fear. And there's spirit of lust. There's all kinds of spirits. But the most difficult spirit that the church has to deal with is a religious spirit. Um, because when a religious spirit has us under its control, we're blind to it. Blind to it. We can't see can't see its influence. And the religious spirit is primarily interested in maintaining what God has done in the past, but doesn't want us involved in what God's doing now or in the future. So he loves tradition. Religious spirit loves tradition and loves to stay in those places. And so, and of course, the religious spirit has its greatest influence and its greatest success in the church. And the root, the root, one of the roots of the religious spirit is pride. It's pride because we like to think that we know and we're right and we've got it all together and we've got all things straightened out and in line. And, <laughs> and the truth is that we don't. And I will tell you that I don't. I don't understand Scripture perfectly. Um... I don't live my life perfectly, and I'm probably guessing that you don't quite either. But we're working on that, and we're pursuing relationship with the Lord so that he, we become more like him. But what is it about... Do you know that there is actually some teaching, and I ran across this, there's some teaching in different segments of the church where they say, that, well, Jesus wasn't really with down-and-out sinners. He was just with people that were pursuing him or seeking him, or they were disciples, but they were just in sin. He didn't really go with sinners. There's some folks that actually teach that. In order to say that we shouldn't be out in the world, okay, And so how do we overcome the religious spirit? Well, I think the first part is Jesus was about to die for those people. So we need to come to a place in our, our own relationship with God where we lay our lives down before him and say, God, I'm yours. I just I surrender myself completely to you. And I ask you to teach me the things. I ask you to examine me. I ask you to show me anything in my life that I, that's not right. I ask you to show me any understanding or teaching that I have that is not according to your word. I ask that you would show me. I, I always want to be teachable. I always want to learn. If I'm supposed to become more like Jesus, how am I ever going to get there if I don't ever change? If I'm not willing to change, if I'm not willing to be exposed to new understanding of Scripture, if I always think of my friend as Wedge Lutz as Wedge Lutz instead of having a weird name, I need to get away from the familiar sometimes. Now, there's 
basic doctrine that never changes. It never changes. And our understanding for some of the fundamentals of the faith has not changed since the birth of the church. But there are a lot of other things that have to do with our walking out of our relationship with the Lord that need to be tweaked from time to time. And so I thought about this. I thought about, well, how do we become more effective in reaching the valley? And there's certain things that we certainly do. But I think about the way that I was raised and in the church. And what we did is we set the bar so low, say, just, you know, read your Bible, pray, and stay away from the world. And all we did was make our children more vulnerable to the world. (laughs) Instead of teaching them to be mighty warriors, instead of teaching them to stand, instead of teaching them that Christ was in them and that they didn't have to fear the world, they didn't have to fear the enemy, they didn't have to be so worried that if they went here that they might be tainted, but we, we need to teach our children to be conquerors. Now, I, I don't want to be unthinking about this. And to put our children at risk. But I believe that if we teach them and ground them in the word and and encourage them in their relationship with the Lord and teach them the things that, that are theirs in Christ, then they will grow as confident warriors. And if we teach them from the time they're little that they are overcomers. <laughs> and that greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world, that that they'll there will be a mighty army come. That will not stop. But the church has not taught, for, for the most part, has not taught their children that way. We've tried to, we've been overprotective. What happens when a parent is overprotective with the child and doesn't let them fall down and cut themselves or, or anything? They don't, they don't learn. And, and there's something deficient in that personality development. I think it's the same thing in the church. We've had this, this, A lot of people growing up at the church that aren't anything like Jesus. They fit the pattern of what the church is expected of them. But they're not really followers of Jesus, patterning patterning what he's doing and doing the things that he does. What would it be like if the, if the world began to see the church like Jesus? They saw him as Jesus. What would it be like for, the, for, the, for, for people who were lost in sin? See, the Lord has given us tools. He's given us equipment. He's given us understanding. He's, he's shown us how to bring deliverance to people through confession, how to break generational bondages. He's shown us how to pray for people for healing. He's shown us how uh, to pray peace, to speak, to minister peace, to bring transformation in people's lives. He's given us the tools to reach out to the lost. He's shown us how to rescue those who are trapped in sin. And so we need to, we need to begin to release that more and more and not be not be afraid 
not be fearful. There comes a time when we need to express his love, his love, his love, his love. And you know, I can't, I can't worry about what other people in the body of Christ do. I know what I have to do. And we need to know what we need to do here at New Beginnings Fellowship and be that demonstration of, of compassion and kindness and love and, and a willingness, a willingness to lay down our lives, a willingness to lay down... Greater love is no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friend. Do we see people around us as friends? Are we willing to lay down our lives for them so they come into the kingdom? What would it take? What would it take for some of the most difficult, the most difficult people, the worst sinners to come to Jesus? Maybe somebody just laying down their lives, loving them unconditionally. Loving them unconditionally. Not being judgmental, not being critical, not casting stones at them, but loving them. Jesus was the the perfect expression of theology. So if you want to understand Scripture interpreted in light of Jesus and the way that he lived, and there's a world out there that needs to see Jesus. The world needs to see Jesus. And it's God's intention that, he see, that they see Jesus through us. So how do we do that? Well, the next story that I'm not going to go into talks about new wineskins. We'll have to save that for next week, but it ties right into this. It's being teachable. It's being flexible. It's being willing to grow, being willing to be stretched. But I believe that Jesus didn't worry about what people thought. He just did what was right. He did what the Father directed him to do. And I will admit, sometimes God asked some folks to do some pretty crazy things that nobody else understood out of character or something that will stretch us. But are you willing? Are you willing to just lay down your life before him and do what he wants you to do? And don't look around and say, well, did anybody ever do that before? Most of the time when God asks us to do something, nobody's ever done that before. Isn't that true? God never changes. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But his ideas, from our perspective, are always changing. <laughs> if, I've ever, if I've learned anything about God is the fact that as soon as I think I haven't figured out he moves and I have a new revelation of him.